Hello, and welcome to the Church Times podcast. Justin Welby has been Archbishop of Canterbury now for five years. Last week, our editor Paul Hanley sat down with the Archbishop at Lambeth Palace to reflect on the last half decade. An edited transcript of the interview is published in this week's Church Times and in its entirety on our website. You can try 10 issues of the Church Times for just £10 by visiting churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. Has it sunk in yet? I mean, do you, do you feel like the I often ask myself that question. Um, I don't think so, no. I've no idea what it feels like to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, if I'm really honest. Um, yes, there are moments when it sinks in. And then there are moments when you think, no, they must be talking about someone else. Um, you know, imposter syndrome is a fairly... Yes. It's a sort of constant companion, I think. And other times when you, when you think, well, I, I wish I weren't. Um, I'd be lying if I said no, never. Right. But they are glitches that the underlying tune, the underlying theme, is a great sense of thankfulness and privilege of being in this role. Yes, you have moments, but I mean, they last uh, very few minutes. Right. Right. Is it possible to say what the hardest thing is about being Archbishop? Safeguarding. That's the hardest thing to deal with in almost every respect. Okay. It's the hardest because you're dealing with uh, the church's sin. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with profound human weakness. Uh, you're dealing with the consequences in damaged people, in people who have been terribly, terribly hurt. And it's heartbreaking. You can't read the Gibb Report or Cahill or Elliot mm. or the Chichester Visitation or even Carlisle, which was taking a slightly different angle. You can't read those without your heart being broken by it. And I just find it tragic. I think we've sought to address it both in mechanistic ways, but also spiritually, in, uh, in prayer, in, in attitude and culture. We've sought to address it in every way we can. It is, but it is the hardest thing. And do you think you're succeeding in addressing it correctly? Time will tell. I think the church today has a dramatically different attitude to 25, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, Some of the stuff I see goes back 50, 60 years Mm -hmm. ago, and and you see it again. You know, we've got the measure that came in about safeguarding. Um, We've got a whole much greater commitment of resources I think five years ago we had 0.5 of a person at the national level. We now have quite a big team. Um, So resources have gone in, but much more importantly, attitude has changed so that uh, nobody, uh, I hope uh, and I believe, nobody would think it appropriate to shift someone to another parish or 
you know, that kind of terrible thing that used to happen in the past. Everyone is trained. I go through training uh, and repeat training on disclosure, on dealing with disclosures. Um, it comes up at every senior staff meeting right across the country. People are constantly focused on it. Uh, so that if something happens now, it will be uh, reported. And not to report it is very, very serious indeed. And, and of course there are people who say that it's, going, it's gone too far. In that the indeed. Now is, is, um, anybody accused of a safeguarding uh, lapse uh, of any sort is, is um, in trouble. How, is, how do you square those two concerns? I don't think we have squared them yet. I think uh, uh, I read the Carl, I've read the Carlisle report very, very carefully, and I've accepted its recommendations, all except half of one recommendation. I think he points out some of the quite severe weaknesses in the initial investigation of George Bell, which you could probably find um, which which in a sense exemplify what you're asking about sure. you know, we have to have a system that brings justice it must bring justice to those who've been abused mm -hmm. to survivors and it must also bring justice to those who are accused uh, we cannot have something which either overlooks safeguarding issues and abuse in its many varied forms, or alternatively, is unjust in its treatment of those who are accused. And in a sense, that's the half the clause of the, the Carlisle thing that you, the, the dispute over, is about the anonymity of, of those who mm. are accused. How is that resolved? Ah, with immense difficulty, <laughs> um, as, you, as you would find, no doubt. I think. Let me put it the other way around. Let's just have a hypothetical situation in which we had not, in which Chichester Diocese had not declared its payment two years ago. Sure. With the independent inquiry, which is something I called for, uh, to have an independent inquiry, uh, and uh, supported both privately and publicly, with that and its thoroughness, that confidentiality undertaking would certainly have become public. Now, the first question when I give evidence would then be asked, what else are you hiding? What do you really know about George Bell that you are not telling us because you're so anxious to keep it secret? So it, it's, it's a lose-lose. And I fully understand the difficulty and I don't find it easy to deal with. But it is very... We have to treat both Bishop Bell, uh, uh, his reputation, we have to hold that as something really precious and valuable. But the person who's brought the complaint is not an inconvenience to be overlooked. They're a human being of immense value and dignity to be treated equally importantly and it is very difficult to square that circle it's, it's an example of, of of a church failing which lands up on your desk um, 
the EU as Archbishop is uh, held responsible for not only what's happened on the watch, but what's happened in the past as well, in a way. Before I was born, in some yes. cases, yes. Um, how, how do you cope with that sort of responsibility? Well, I think it, it, it's the nature of things. I mean, you're, one of the strange things about this role is, uh, as in many roles in the church, is that you are often responsible without having any power to change anything. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's not power without responsibility, it's responsibility without power. And that's quite a... And that applies in all kinds of areas. People say, well, why don't you just do X? In fact, I remember Rowan in an interview saying something very similar. Um, and the answer is, strange as it may sound, we don't have a papal system. There is... You can't give orders in that way. And um, you... The Church of England, and even more so the Anglican Communion, by a couple of orders of magnitude more, moves through consensus, collaboration, what historically has been called a process of reception, of growing into something, and then looking back and saying, yes, in this we see the work of the Spirit of God changing us and directing us. So what power do you have? Whether, I, I'm not sure power is the right word. Mm. You have the capacity, the archbishop and clergy and lay leaders at all points in the church have the capacity to bless and not to bless something. To say, yes, I support that or not to support it. That, is quite, that can make quite a significant difference. You have certain legal powers, but they're relatively restricted. You know, famously, the, archbishop, the archbishops in either province don't hire or fire bishops, which everyone is very surprised about, you know. Uh, you know. Sometimes if you make an appointment that people like, it's very nice to get the letter saying, congratulations on your appointment of whoever. Um, and you think, oh, that's nice, but actually it wasn't me. And then you get the other one that says, why did you appoint, usually the same person, why did you appoint so-and-so? And you think, well, actually it wasn't me. You know. So it's the big mistake in this role, which I'd sort of worked out before I came, but has been amply confirmed, is don't waste time looking for levers to pull, because there aren't any. It's a process of persuasion, of example, of blessing, and withholding blessing for particular things. So, if you receive a letter or, or an email or whatever that's saying, please, can you do something about this? What's well, there are certain relatively restricted things that I can do. You can speak, you can advocate, you can um, seek to persuade, you can raise issues. You know, when you get the letter that says, "Well, why don't you put a billion pounds into such and such," and assumes that I ring up the church commissioners and say, "Now." put a billion pounds in such and such and they snap to attention at the other end of the phone and say yes Archbishop we'll do it straight away that of course is an illusion if you haven't got the ability to, to make things change in a way I didn't say that okay. because by blessing 
by supporting, by advocating, you can make things change. And I think that's one of the things that takes longer, but is in many ways more satisfying than a highly hierarchical structure where you give orders and everyone does what they're told. Where, if that exists, that's probably how the Church Times works. But the, um, uh, you know, as the editor, you say, go and do this, and they all immediately do. (laughs) (laughs) So I think you may get the point I'm making. But what, what is satisfying? I mean, for instance, let's look at some of the things. Community of St. Anselm, renewal of prayer in the religious life. It's one of the major priorities uh, for what we do. Community of St. Anselm, that we can't say to Diocese, former community or to other provinces, former religious community. But somehow, in the grace of God, we've, that's happened here, it's grown, it's developed, it's got much deeper roots, it's wonderful. And we're seeing other communities growing up in other places. That's very exciting. Um, on the reconciliation front, out of a number of different sources, this Reconciling Leaders Network, the Women on the Frontline uh, initiative, um, these two things have emerged and we are supporting and blessing them. And we're seeing them taken up by people around the world. Uh, Thy Kingdom Come. Is, is a huge thing. It's completely outgrown even the Anglican Communion, let alone the Church of England, uh, and has been taken up by churches all around the world. Now, all that's happened. I wouldn't say it's because I said that must happen, because I don't think I would have had the impact, but undoubtedly the fact that the office of the Archbishop supported it, gave it, opened some doors and the wind of the spirit blew and somehow it caught people's imagination and in the grace of God things happen. So you can make things happen it's just you can't give orders and make things happen. Um, what sort of freedom to manoeuvre do you have? As Archbishop and as the years go by do you find yourself more constrained by an understanding of what's expected of you or what the consequences will be if you say something I think that's a really interesting question. And funnily enough, it's uh, one I've been pondering over this weekend, probably because five years have gone by. Um, I don't think I've got a good answer to it. But I think the answer that's forming in my thinking is that as time goes by, you need more determination to do certain things. But if you have the determination and work with others and... I mean, again, it's not about giving orders, but your freedom for manoeuvre is not constrained to the extent that working with others and through relationships, there is the opportunity for people to gather a common vision and to move in a particular direction. And I think, you know, part of that is when things change, we change the way we do things. When the context changes, we change the way we do things. And, and I think you know, the, the house of one of the other changes, I hope, I, I think, has been that both the college and the house of bishops have, been, have become more willing to discuss, the last meeting was, was a very good one, more open, more collegial 
Now that's not something that I've just brought in, it's, it's happened uh, steadily with a, a common view of that happening. But what that means is you can raise subjects and, and actually chew them over together, and that reopens your room for manoeuvre. Do you find yourself biting your tongue more than in the past, though, do you think? I think I am well I think I'm ever more aware that if I don't bite my tongue, the consequence, the consequences will be painful. But I have just written a book which is not a tongue biting exercise and has I'm for good or ill and we will wait and see. Um, has um, um, quite a lot of not tongue biting in it. Okay. So yes, I'm, I try to resist the urge to bite my tongue. Right at the beginning, um, you talked uh, on the same theme, and you talked about. Sorry, at the beginning of what? At the beginning of your primacy. Right. Okay. Um, you said um, we were talking about. I think it might have been in the context of gay marriage. Everything is. <laughs> Um, I must examine my own mind prayerfully and carefully. I remember a couple of conversations that begin when you were asking for a room to manoeuvre. You didn't want to be... People were trying to push you to say exactly where you stood on this matter. And yes. You, and you said, just give me time. Um, yes. Have you had enough time? No, not yet. I think where that has taken us or taken me, is to this really huge program uh, around the Episcopal teaching documents. It's called in rather an ungainly fashion. We need something snappy, snappy for that. But um, what that is doing is mapping out the area of our agreement and disagreement. It's not coming to find a conclusion. It's mapping out the area of our agreement and disagreement around, uh, always around themes of missiology and anthropology, theological anthropology and general anthropology, and looking at the culture, the biblical theology, the uh, philosophical and ethical theology, uh, and the history and patristic theology, those four great streams. Now, um, that is... Yeah, the issue of how the church after 2,000 years deals with understandings of human sexuality is as about a big and complicated issue as you're ever going to get. And it's not one you make a snappy decision on. And I think the point of the Episcopal teaching document, which is being looked at by numerous other churches, and let's remember it's not just us that's struggling with this, it's all the global churches. Or is the, the, the outcome of it, I hope, will be a much clearer map of the things we agree on, the things we disagree on, and the things we think are really serious uh, disagreements, the most fundamental disagreements. And that coming out of that, we are able to take the next step in which direction it happens to be. But I'm not going to be any more precise than that. And I can make this argument as long as you like, this uh, answer as long as you like. I'll just go on talking until you ask me to stop, really. In the meantime, we have, um, we've had the, the good disagreement process. Or disagreeing well, whichever, yeah. yeah. Um, I prefer disagreeing well. And um, the various people um, 
who I think used to used to be quite close to, and people like William Taylor and so on, who who have have saying this is unbiblical. Um, uh, this is this is this is possibly just being nice, but it's not any way to approach what that. disagreeing well. Yes. Well, I mean, I've known. I have. I've never been that close to William. I've met him a couple of dozen times over the last forty years. I guess I'm very reluctant to disagree with him uh, on this, uh, but I don't agree with his biblical view on that. I think when you look through, particularly uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, one Corinthians and two Corinthians. Uh, the latter parts of Philippians, Ephesians, I mean, you go on and on, a lot of the underlying theme is how a church that was extraordinarily diverse, particularly between Greeks and Jews, mm-hmm. uh, or Jews and non-Jews, in, 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 in you know, Greeks meaning everyone who wasn't Jewish, how that church found its unity in Jesus Christ, although it disagreed on numerous things, most fundamentally about the application of the law. And, and we all know these arguments. And Paul, I would not sum up his teaching as disagreeing well. I think that would be naff and, and obviously wildly simplistic. But there is this struggle to see how you live in love and unity when you disagree with one another. And that is disagreeing well. Now, you can create a straw man and say, it doesn't matter what we disagree on as long as we're nice to each other, and suggest that I'm saying that. That's rubbish. Of course it matters what we disagree on. Uh, These arguments are incredibly important, not only about sexuality, but about numerous other things um, within the church. But do we live out that disagreement in a way that demonstrates that we are caught up in the love of God and the love of Christ? Or do we live them out in a way that says that we're behaving like a political party having a row? That has quite a a fundamental um, impact on, on on the unity that we're aiming for. Indeed. Well, the unity we're aiming for is the unity that Christ prays for, in particularly in, you know, in John 17, above all, towards the end of John 17. But it's also the unity that Paul calls for, especially, for example, in, you know, the, in, in 1 Corinthians 10 forwards, um, uh, in, in um, this wonderful picture in Ephesians 2, you know, the beautiful, extraordinary picture of of, of barriers, both the walls being broken down. That was obviously talking in a particular social context. But uh, those, that sense of unity without uniformity, we don't all have to tick exactly the same boxes, but we do have to be devoted to Christ as Lord. We need to be caught up in the love of God in Jesus Christ. We need to be caught up in that love to serve the world around us, to care for the poor and the marginalised and those on the edge to set aside ourselves that that kind of unity which i see beautifully and there's another thing i really enjoy about this role um, when you go somewhere and you find the church putting aside profound differences the church i don't just mean the anglicans i mean the 
God's people, the people of Christ, putting aside profound differences in order to serve the most badly hurting and ill-treated and tortured. That is so beautiful that it, it, if we could live that out, I can't see how the world would not be captured by it. And yet the world can look at the church and, and this process of working through some of the, the serious ethical and moral, moral questions that she's doing. And, uh, and certainly anybody under the age of 30 would say, we've sorted that. I mean, that's not a problem. Why are you still obsessing about sexual relations, for example? Because we are a church that is caught up as the people of God, in the love of God, in time and space. So not only in this age, but we are part of... The church is not just what we see today around us. It is all those throughout history who've loved and served. It is the tradition. It is the scriptures. Uh, it is guided by the scriptures. It held by the scriptures, by the tradition, and working out what it means to live as God's people in a given age and culture is something we have always struggled with. There's nothing new about what we're going through at the moment. It is on a different subject, but it's things we've done before, and uh, we need to learn the lesson of going through these processes of disagreement while demonstrating a profound love for one another. I mean, if you'll let me slip back into some of my little cliches, which is where I'm obviously happiest. You know, Jesus tells us to love one another, to love our neighbour, to love our enemy. And I keep saying to people, well, who's left out? Who does not fall into one of those categories? Is this grasped, do you think, within the Anglican Communion at the moment, this approach to disagreement? On a bad day, I ask myself if it's grasped within me. Um, you know, when things, when you've, when you've been infuriated by something and, and you know, you, you're sort of struggling um, in parts and from time to time. I mean, you've got the... Um, uh, the new bishops course running in Canterbury at the moment in fact they're coming up here tomorrow 30 bishops from all over the world um, uh, colloquially known as the baby bishops course and um, they come from places of the most horrifying conflict South Sudan um, uh, DRC they come from places of enormous indescribable wealth and they come together, they come from totally different ways of being and thinking, and they come together and share together um, the, uh, their life of learning what it is to be a bishop, uh, down at Canterbury and up here. And you do see them learning to love one another. It's wonderful, it's very beautiful. So, so looking at the communion now and five years ago, do you think it's in a better place than it was? It's been going through some quite significant um, upheaval over the last 10, 15 years, really. So 20. Yeah. I, yes, um, 
and talk about a hostage to fortune. All right, yes, I do. But uh, I think that's building on what was already happening. Um, I'm not taking credit for it in any way. I think we've had two good primates meetings. And they were jolly difficult at times, but they were good. And they were very, very moving. And I still look back at moments in each of them, and uh, particularly prayer together, the Eucharist together, and am um, bowled over by what I saw and participated in, and just think what a privilege that was to have been there. And a good ACC in Lusaka, and we've got plans for a Lambeth conference. And being physically together is important? Hugely important. There is no substitute. Twitter doesn't... <laughs> no, it certainly does not. <laughs> it certainly does not. We're a family. And, and the idea that families, are, you know, we have in our family, we, with the children and everything, we have a WhatsApp group. Well, that is not a substitute for the raucous, noisy, boisterous, calm, supportive, argumentative, getting together... It's, you know, come on. When someone in your family is hurting, you can send all kinds of supportive messages. But it's not the same as an arm around the shoulder. I want to move on to the subject of your book, which I course I haven't seen yet. Um, what's, what's the object of it? What are you... After I wrote a Lent book about two years ago, I said to all my colleagues, if you ever see me start another book, please shoot me. Because... I say it was such a painful process and about 18 months, 20 months ago I, uh, on holiday uh, I suppose following the Brexit vote it provoked me into thinking what kind of country are we hoping to be what? and then I started sort of writing a bit and it accidentally turned into a book and what the book is about it's called Reimagining Britain Foundations for Hope what it's trying to say is, from within a strongly Christian viewpoint, I think we're at one of those moments, which happens probably every three or four generations. I'd say the last one was the generation after 1945, that great period before that, the middle of uh, the middle decades of the 19th century. I mean, that's an arguable historical point. That uh, we have the opportunity and the necessity to reimagine what our society should look like in this country. And I'm trying to contribute some ideas to that. So it starts with a general look at what you might call values or societal virtues and practices, and then applies it in the great historic um, triad of... Um, of areas where reform has been centred over the last couple of hundred years of education, health and housing, but then looks at some of the, the great changes, and so around the family, around the environment, um, uh, uh, around foreign policy and immigration and integration, and the role of faith groups and the church in particular. And so it, it tries to look at those around a structure of values and 
contribute to the discussion I think we need to have as a nation about what our dream is to have a hope-filled future for the next 20 years, whether we have Brexit or not. Uh, and it looks very likely as we are. But what do we do that's not just about economics and about management and all that stuff, uh, you know, governance, but is about saying what kind of society fills our lives with hope and purpose and how do, what do we base that in? I was, I was thinking about food banks the other day. I mean, that's an example where people have perceived a problem. Uh, um, uh, many people have come up with a practical solution. The churches are involved yep. uh, uh, together with the wider community. And yet it seems to be having no effect on government policy. I, I think you're taking a very short-term view for a start. But I entirely agree that it does not add sufficient impact on government policy or on concerns um, and we have to as the church particularly with our position as lords push continually on this to influence government policy and that is something we're doing we're dealing with a culture that over the last certainly arguably since the late 70s certainly since big bang in in 87 uh, 86 87 and the great changes in the city of London, has become financialized um, rather than is economically driven. To a degree, uh, you know, Bobby picks it up very well in The Shield of Achilles, that we have the market state. And the market state is the state where the authority of the rulers is validated by economic prosperity and choice, market choice. And Bobbitt shows very clearly how different that is from um, previous uh, incarnations of the nation-state. Now, when you've got that kind of market-driven state where people, when people say the big problem is the consumer is not spending enough as, you know, one of the sort of major analyses of society, that is going to take a huge amount of change. Because that that drives you into saying that those who can't spend enough are therefore valueless. That's the sort of logical consequence of that appalling view of what it is to be human, rather than starting with the intrinsic dignity of the human person. Having written a book, do you have, what sort of access, you're talking back to the blessing and, and withholding of blessing that you can do, mm. do you have access to politicians? Um, I see politicians a great deal, yes. And do you, um, is there a way you can influence them personally? Do you, do you Let's wait and see. I mean, I think we'll have to look back in 50 years and see what the cons- what, whether that had any influence or not. Me, personally, I have no idea. I wouldn't be vain enough to say that, you know, one conversation with a politician means they go away saying, oh, I've got to change my whole attitude. I think one's in cloud cuckoo land, if you think, that but over time a consistent witness in action and love and life by the church and by those who have political who who speak to politicians an attitude that changes popular approaches will have an impact but it takes time it takes it's not one person, it's not one archbishop. Can I say. Now you listen to or, 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 or 
Well, they're always polite and listen. Whether they agree is a completely different thing. I think very often they disagree, but that's fine. That's the nature of democracy and the kind of free society we have. I'm entitled to express my views. They're entitled to disagree. You know, I don't go in there and they say, oh, well, if you say that, Archbishop, well, we better change our whole approach. You know, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's a great sadness, but, you know, yeah. Next five years. Feeling you're, you're pacing yourself now. There are, there are things you say, well, I can't do that, but I'll do that when I finish this job. Um, Not really. I can't, if you were to ask me, a, I couldn't think of an example of okay. that. Um, I, I mean, you obviously do pace yourself. You, you know, diary management, you have priorities. There are certain things you just think, well, I'm never going to get that done, and that's life. And do you have an agenda still that you, you think, oh, well, I, I, I haven't done this yet, I must get it. Oh, yes. Huge. Enormous, yes. But it's not a sort of managerial <coughs> tick box agenda. It's a sense of how, as the Church of Jesus Christ, or a part, to be accurate, a part of the Church of Jesus Christ, do we, in this country and around the world, respond to the prompting of the Spirit particularly around the poor, around the crises of the world. How do we love as we should love? And more widely, how do we contribute, how do I contribute with other churches to the church universal being seen as touched and filled and overflowing with the love of Christ? That's the great challenge we always have, and everyone has that responsibility. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment, and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.